Hi, and welcome back to the Rage Fitness Wellbeing Podcast. Our guest today is Matthew Adam, who is a family and couples psychotherapist. I've been practicing that, as you can tell, and I still forgot it. Um, <laughs> firstly, I want to say thank you because I know how busy you are with your own practice, your consultancy work, family, traveling around the world. Um, so thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I know we booked in a lot a long time ago, um, so appreciate your, your time and your energy coming on. So for people that don't know what a families and couples psychotherapist is, um, me a little bit, because I forget from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is it? What do you do overall? That's a big question, Craig. I know. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Oh, man. We might be just an hour talking about this, mightn't we? Yeah, yeah we I might. Thought, I guess just give it some context because I know um, it's a big word. Yeah. And I think it can, and I know there's lots of elements to it. So I think of myself as a relationships therapist because the type of psychotherapy I'm trained in is, is about relationships and how we communicate with each other and how sometimes when we miscommunicate it creates problems or we have different perspectives and different ideas on what's important to us and that may not match up with someone else. So my job as a psychotherapist in that capacity is to, to help people understand themselves better as well as how, how they can relate better to other people. Okay. Well, I think that was a very good sentence or two to sum up what you do which is obviously a bit pretty much bigger than that overall and I think for people that don't know um, you've supported me in the past haven't you Mm. Um, that when uh, Billy was born we had a conversation over the phone I was very nervous very anxious so much so I left the house and drove around the block in the car because I just didn't know what was going to come up yeah I haven't told you that before have I um and I think I was slightly embarrassed a little bit as well, because mm. you know who I am, like, and I think, <laughs> to whatever that means. Caveman. Caveman. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it would be, be good to raise that, because if I felt like that, and I think I understand myself quite strongly enough, and I reflect quite a lot on myself, and I'm quite self-aware. Mm. When, when Billy came about, I struggled, as again, emotionally to connect with him. So then if I reached out for support and some people would never reach out for support and I, had, I was so nervous and anxious, I got in the car. I think it was like eight o'clock or something we had the call um, because I didn't want Charlotte to listen. Mm. I didn't want to be weak in front of Charlotte. I didn't want Charlotte to be worried about me. So then I just got in the car and just drove around the block for 45 minutes, 45 minutes to an hour, whatever it was. Um, and I think your support... Don't know how much. Don't know. Don't know how much you know. How much it impacted me and supported me. So this is not a sell of Matthew, but from my perspective, you helped me massively. Hmm. So I thought through the conversation, people might pick up gems or thoughts around, or little pieces of information that may help them. That's why I thought it'd be good to bring you on. Yeah which would yeah. be massively helpful. For well, that'd people. be great. Hopefully I won't disappoint you then. Um, but it's really, really, really good to know. Um, thanks for, for letting me know that. It only took me three and a half years to let you know. Has it been that long? Probably. No, no, because Billy's only <laughs> two and a bit. <laughs> it took me two years. 
Um, but yeah, thank you anyway. Thought yeah, I'll, cool. I'll say that. I've made some notes um, around today's conversation because I thought it'd be good to try and hit some points mm. overall. So I'm gonna I'm gonna reference this. Normally I just look at you or look at the camera, but I thought it'd be good to try and get as much content out that will help people mm-hmm. overall. Um, I think, f- from my perspective, why did you go into psychotherapy? Mm. What, was the, um, what was the desire? Yeah, I suppose for as long as I can remember, remember the, the one thing that I wanted to do was to help people mm-hmm. right, from an early age. You know when you, you think, you know, as a, as a child, what do I want to be when I grow up? And, you know, I think some of my first ones were like Farman or, you know, all those sort of things. You know, exactly, things. you know. Um, and then I thought, right, well, uh, I'd like to actually help people. Uh, not that firemen don't help people for any firemen out there. This and the firemen. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? They do a great job. But we don't um, need them anytime soon. Well, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I remember wanting to be a, a, a doctor, a pediatrician. Uh, from an early age, I loved working with kids, you know, from, mm. from very early age. Um, and I remember I was in uh, high school and I, I said this to our careers counsellor. This is what I wanted to do. And she, she looked at me and she said, do you really think you have the grades for that? <laughs> and I thought, okay. <laughs> aim com- low. <laughs> great confidence boost. <laughs> right? Aim low. Well, she was right, but, yeah. but aim low. So I thought, right, well, I'd like to... I'd like to do something in, in health somewhere along the way. And that sort of got lost when I went to university because I didn't know what I wanted to do mm. or how to do it. Um, and I spent three years of the four years of university uh, just kind of drifting, you know, not really knowing what I wanted to do. It wasn't until I came across counseling as, uh, as a, an option that I thought that's... That's more like what I could do. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I ended up getting a, a, a BSc in counseling. Um, and that sort of set me on my way towards uh, thinking about, well, actually, what type of counseling do I want to do? I want to be a family therapist. That was probably the point where I realized, actually, I want to work with families uh, in particular because I know that families are really important. And of course I have a family, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it, it was about how can I help people have better relationships in their families. So that then set me on, I suppose, a career path where uh, I went to get my uh, master's degree in social work. So uh, I grew up and uh, was educated in America. Uh, you might think education in America, really? <laughs> I'm not saying it. <laughs> do they do that? Uh, and um, so the, the social work degree uh, in in the states uh, would would have allowed me to practice as a licensed clinical social worker once I got qualified, which would be akin to what might be mm. a clinical psychologist, if we think about sort of parity. Um, and uh, so I did that so I could practice as a family therapist. Um, and then I moved to England, where I thought, well, I'll just do some work over here. Experience the world a little bit. How long ago was that? That was, gosh, do you know, that was uh, 21 years ago. Mm. I lived in America for 19 years, for most of my life, most of my formative years. 
and I've now lived in the UK for longer. For longer than that. Bizarre. It doesn't down, feel like it? that at all. We just discussed before the podcast, like it, Billy, we say Billy's two and a bit. So I guess when you've got your own kids and your own and their own family and they've grown up now, it, it, you don't realise the time goes rapidly anyway. Or does it? So then once you come over just to try it out, spread your wings a little bit, let's see what you can do over here, you end up being end up staying here longer than you actually lived mm. in, in America for. I know. It's crazy. But anyway, so, so then uh, when I came over here, I thought, right, well, I'll just, just be a family therapist over here because that's what I can do. Mm. Uh, and, you know, everywhere I went to sort of try to find a job as a family therapist, that was sort of doors shut on me, like, what? You're a social worker. Mm. Um, and uh, so I eventually thought, right, well, I, if I want to do family therapy, I need to get my qualification in family therapy over here, which is a distinct degree. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what I did. And uh, did that, qualified, and here I am today as a systemic... Systemic. ...couples and family psychotherapist. And I found that interesting. You started that conversation by saying you wanted to be a GP, but you didn't have the grades to do that. Mm-hmm. But then uh, I checked over your website this morning just to, I guess refresh the brain and the amount of acronyms before your title so you, you you've got i think maybe you found your passion in helping people or families through therapy but you've you've got a mindset of, of learning i guess because all the different things that you've that you've attained to be in the position that you are in um do you think you would have enjoyed being um a pediatrician as you call it, more so than what you are at the minute? Well, yeah, maybe. It's hard and, and maybe, but, you know, I mean, that's, that's a difficult question because mm. I don't, I'm, I'm not a GP or a doctor. Yeah. Um, I think for me, growing up, academic work was not easy, mm. you know, and I think a lot of the messages that, that I got from teachers was that you're not really that clever. So what's the point in trying? Right, when you hear that enough times, you just think, well, why bother? Yeah. You know, I was really good at socializing, you know, talking to people, you know, mm-hmm. sort of just. And so my focus in, in school tended to be more about just having fun than actually doing the work. Yeah. So in, in a way, you know, could I have ever been a doctor? Would I have enjoyed that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but did I feel like I could actually accomplish things? You know, academically, no, not really. And it wasn't really until, I guess, my early adulthood that I started to think, well, actually, actually, I can learn. I do know things. And as you say, I've, I've got a few qualifications behind me. But that mm-hmm. really came after yeah. I qualified as a systemic psychotherapist. And I guess you have to, this is, this is the way I think anyway, I guess when you go into that much depth of education and learning, I guess you, you warm your brain up, brain up enough from a learning perspective. So then, when you go into the next bit, you're like, you've got all this foundational education and knowledge to then help you get to the next bit and the next mm. bit. Um, I've got no, from a degree perspective, um, no qualifications in the mental health space. I know that's a very broad statement to make, and I know there's lots of subcategories in it. Um, yes, I've done which I'm not saying is on the same level by any stretch. I've done 
two-day suicide prevention training. I know that's totally different to years of university degrees. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> I'm not comparing them whatsoever. But my, I'm getting to the point with was is that from a from a therapy conversational guiding and supporting someone through physical, mental, or emotional health. What what is your stance on a lived experience point of view? I think it's important. I think it's critical. Um, I couldn't do my job properly if I didn't use my lived experience. Because hmm. how do I relate to people if I just forget everything about me. So it's really, really important lived experience um, because it, it helps us to relate to others, uh, whether they have the same experience or whether they don't have the same experience. It's still an idea about this is what life is like. And I suppose when we start to move into that space where actually we, we can both relate to something then we can move towards trying to activate some kind of change. Mm. So if I said to you, um, have you ever had a struggle in your life that you thought would be insurmountable? What would you say? Yes. And I can say the same. Mm -hmm. And then I can say, well, how did you overcome that? And you might give me an answer. And then I might say, well, actually, that's interesting because the way that I managed was this way. Yeah. And we've got an idea about how a lived experience might bring people together because we can talk about similar experiences. It's the same with feelings. I think of feelings as relational in that the way that I feel inevitably is either influenced by you or mm. I can influence you with how I feel. Because I think that if someone comes in the room now and they're effing and Jeff and looking very threatening, their, their energy is affecting you on some level. Absolutely. And regardless of um, my lived experience, your lived experience, we may handle that situation very differently. So I do value the, 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 the sentence lived experience. Mm. And I think some people in certain areas, in my opinion, undermine it slightly. Yes, when you go into the world of supporting people's mental health, from our point of view, um, we don't profess to be anywhere around clinical or any specific qualifications in that realm. Um, but I have my hat on as much as we can do around lived experience approach mm. is massive. So I just thought I'll get your yeah, opinion I mean, on that. Lived experiences is, is about, you know, um, how you can understand each other mm. better. You know, if, if I haven't experienced, uh, you know, deprivation, social deprivation, financial deprivation, you know, if I haven't experienced any of that in my life, can I truly relate to it? No, I can't. Mm. So I can't know what it's like to have to go hungry. I don't know what it's like to have to, uh, you know, constantly be trying to find how you're going to, uh, afford the next bills. Mm. I don't have those experiences. I can relate to them in the sense that I know that must be tough and I have worries and there are things that, that sort of occupy my mind. But I can't relate to that in terms of actually what that lived experience is like. Mm. And I think that's where, when we talk about lived experience and why it's important, it's because someone who knows what they're talking about can better support someone 
with the same experience in the sense that actually I can trust you. I know that you know. Yeah. Because I might be good at my job. I might be able to get people to talk and to think about stuff. But there's always going to be that divide because mm. I don't have those experiences. Yeah, I do find that interesting. And I think within, I'm re- referencing the organization, our rage is that the people we've got within the um, team, there's a, there's, a, there's a bountiful of experience. So depending on the need or support that somebody needs, uh, we've got someone on hand to, as a peer support element, put, connect them together to support one another. Because the ones that um, work for us now have been in difficult situations and they're not in them difficult situations mm. anymore. And the people that walk through the door or virtual support, a lot of the people are in those situations still. So it's just connecting those dots. And it's good from my perspective to, I guess, hear your thoughts on that. Mm. But it's about helping people, isn't it? And, yeah. and you know, uh, you have to meet them where they are, right? And, and, and that's not just saying, oh, well, you're in this location or you're in this location, but it's actually relating to someone at the point where they are. And if someone's in, in a world of hurt or they're having a really hard time, um, you know, who's the first person they're going to reach out to? Is it going to be someone like me? Maybe. Maybe not. Mm. Maybe it's going to be someone who they know they can trust. And I think that's one of the things that, that you do really well. You as a, a team, you as a company, is you generate that sense of, look, we're in this together. We're here to support you. And uh, you can talk to us, you know, and, and trust is really important. And if you're having a hard time, is it easy to trust someone you don't know, who you don't know where they come from or, mm-hmm. or what they're like, or is it easy to trust someone who you know, they know what I've been through? And I think, well, I think the last one, four or five guests, excluding James, who's, who's the pro boxer, the people who've been through one of our programs. <clears throat> I think it's showcased quite a lot the through conversation, the therapeutic support that we bring to them because Jane was on last and we, she was things popped up that she didn't realise was hindering her well-being score. So I feel every time we do these podcasts, it's it's support for people outside, watching, listening, across social media. Um, and I think having you on, again, is just another enabler of that. Um, so we're going to go down some of the points, if that's okay. Of course. Um, this is a big question. So I'm not, ex- I'm not expecting a one-point answer, but... the. <laughs> especially around families and young people. Um, do you have any um, support, supportive ideas or coping mechanisms around young people suffering with anxiety? Mm-hmm. And again, I know that's... Because every individual is different and triggers are different and such. Yeah. I mean, so that's really broad, you know, as yeah. you say. Yeah. And, and you're just being mean now. <laughs> Because you know, I don't you, mean you, to you, be mean. <laughs> I don't mean to be mean. I'm just going to start waffling, it's okay. you know, and just to stop me if I uh, bore you. Like, <laughs> yeah, time to stop. But again, like the, the waffling may, you may waffle for five minutes, but in mm. each each of those seconds and minutes, there might be different nuggets for different people. Yeah. So if if we, you know, what advice might I have for? 
young people today uh, mm. who might be struggling with uh, anxiety, low mood, depression. I suppose... Sorry, I'll give you some context. Yeah. The reason why I asked that question is because the sheer volume of people that we see mm. and it made me mirroring into your practice and your one-to-one -to -one support and, and, and the sessions that you deliver is that um, young women the age of 11 to 16, 17 struggling overlapping anxiety and confidence mm -hmm. and I guess we can all point the finger at social media which is a, a significant impact to that I believe in my opinion um, I thought let's let's narrow the the demographic a little bit to mm. eleven to sixteen year olds, female especially, because they're the things that we get a lot of messages about mm. overall. Mm. Um, interesting that you're asking a man mm. about the experiences of teenage girls. I thought your experience with helping families. Well, this is true, but again, no lived experience. Yes, yeah, true. Um, do you know any psychotherapists that are female? Yes, of course. Okay, on. <laughs> so it, it's difficult for me to be able to say with any degree of certainty mm. exactly what might be driving some of that. You've, you've alluded to some already. Um, I can say with a degree of certainty that um, girls in school from nursery, you know, are nursery. different from boys in mm. school. And um, that plays out, you know, from a very early age, you know, the, the, the interaction. And um, you'll see in, in nurseries or, you know, uh, school clubs or even in reception, you can see at that age that girls are pretty catty, that mm. they, they, they bicker, they argue, they hold a grudge, right? And that, that plays out over the... The years of primary school you can see it okay. um, I've talked to many girls in in probably uh, sort of juniors uh, sort of in, in primary schools year three on where some of those dynamics between the girls is starting to play out create some anxiety okay. um, social anxiety um, as it relates to do I fit into the popular group do do I not mm. fit into the popular group this is where you might find um, girls, young girls who might have neurodiversity uh, presence. Uh, you know, they don't maybe relate as well to some of the other girls in the class, and so you might start to see some isolation, or you might start to see a little bit of bullying, or just things that you might think are low level, mm -hmm. and schools might not necessarily pick up on them. Um, and, and that starts to play out straight through primary school. You can see it in most schools. And I think like that last two sentences or three sentences, I can think of 10, 15 girls in the last three to four weeks um, that have touched base with us. Every single thing that you've just said, from neurodiversity to um, isolation potentially, um, to bullying, to schools not being potentially proactive in the behavior around supporting that young person, not maybe not having the resources to have people to be on a one-to-one -one or a group format. So again, I think I've interrupted to agree with you, um, but I think in your opinion, and again, I know you're not a girl and you're not a teacher and you're in your own space, but 
what can we do for that specific demographic? Because I think neurodiversity is being, it's not prescribed, that's not the right word, is being identified a lot more now in young people. Mm. Even though the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a high volume of, in a waiting list perspective, but I'm hearing a lot more that young women, especially, and young men, are being, um, are, are finding that they are neurodiverse on mm. whatever level that may be. Mm. Well, you know, uh, again, we're moving into mm. sort of a, a different domain, but um, if we think about what, what is neurodiversity and we break it down, neuro is the brain, diversity is difference. So it's just about having different brain structure, essentially, yeah. a different way of thinking. And if, if we think about it in that, that sense, then we can start to try to understand how do people think differently. Mm. And, and if we can understand how someone thinks differently, then we're better able to understand them. And if we're better able to understand them, then we can respond better. Yeah. So in, in many of these cases where you've might, you might have um, young people who are... Uh, or even children who are behaving, you know, they're not, they're not doing as you ask or, um, you know, they're, they're sort of getting really upset or outraged by small things mm. or, you know, they're, they're, they're not really following your direction or, you, you know, you're getting cross because they're, they're, they're being bloody-minded. <laughs> you know, those might be indications that mm. they're thinking differently. And so you might need to try to get at, well, what is it that you're hearing? What is it that you're thinking? Um, and, and I come across that type of presence or that presentation more and more and more mm. and more in my work. Now, you could argue, am I coming across it more and more in my work because I'm now more aware of and alert to that? Yeah. Or is it just suddenly, in this day and age, we're just having more young people who present with neurodiversity? Yeah. I think it's probably the first is that I'm just now more alert to it. I know what to look for. And that perhaps neurodiversity is more typical than mm. neurotypical. Yeah. When you say it, when you describe what neurodiversity was, I think it's neurodiversity is more typical than typical, mm. which, which I find quite interesting. Me and Charlotte was actually having that conversation maybe two and a bit weeks ago about that, saying 80% of the people that we know are probably neurodiverse. Mm. So then how do you identify the ones that aren't? Because we don't think that way, don't act that way. Mm. We see what we see, which is quite interesting. Yeah, and, and more and more, you talk to people, you know, they'll, they'll do things in a certain way, or it needs to be like this. And, you know, we have certain diagnoses for certain neurodevelopmental conditions of which we're talking about in terms of neurodiversity. Um, but if we, if we sort of step back and we simplify it, yeah. And we just think about how do people think. We don't need a label. You know, sometimes you do need a label. Absolutely. You need to get that done because it might give you additional support or help in other areas. But broadly speaking, if we're just talking about how do we relate to people, mm. you know, it's, it's the thinking. So if we come back to, you know, these young people, these children who, who are experiencing anxiety, trying to understand how they're experiencing the world. Mm. How do they think? What are the things that are on their mind? That gives you a way into, you know, how are you thinking about what's happening at school? 
And I think that's, that's what I've learned in the past maybe 12 months, is how you understand someone is how you react to someone. And I think we're all in our own path. And we've either got our own problems or we're trying to do our own thing or trying to build our own success, whatever that looks like. We forget sometimes that the people beside us or the people around us just need listening to and understanding a little mm. bit more. And I think that's be, becoming the dad that's allowed me to slow down a little bit. You, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've slowed down a little bit. You might have. You might have. You Maybe might not have. to the average Joe. Mile a minute. <laughs> um, but I feel like I've slowed down. I feel like I've slowed down anyway, Matthew. That's a, you, don't have to, you don't have to agree with me. Um, but I feel like I've slowed down enough to acknowledge people and be more present mm. and understanding mm. and seeing rather than be in the Craig show. Yeah, I mean, I think when, when you start making assumptions mm. about people based on what you think you know, then you're potentially moving into uh, unhelpful positions. You know? And I think that's where we come back to lived experience. You know, I can make assumptions about people in any walk of life, but I'd be basing that on biases or prejudices, mm -hmm. and I'd, I'd form these judgments that might then lead me to make certain conclusions, you know, that, that are inaccurate. That can still happen with lived experience, mm -hmm. of course. But it's different in, in the sense that I have to be open-minded enough to be able to ask those questions and not just be led by what I think is the case. So I think, again, we've got a, I think we've got a full circle there, is that do you think helping that specific age demographic, 11 to 17, let's say, um, all sexes rather than isolating a a specific gender. Um, do you think you just need to be understood more and heard more and then get the additional support thereafter around confidence and anxiety? It's, it's, it's not as simple as that. Or you it, might say that. Well, yeah, well, of course. I mean, it, I suppose the, the way you've asked that question it implies a linear causality, you know, almost mm. like it's A, B, C, D, and E when it's really more circular causality. So there's no start, no end. It, all multi-factorial aspects feed into each other. So part of it is definitely going to be, you know, are you listening? Mm -hmm. Are you understanding? But then there's going to be more than that. It's, it's going to be also about how, how are they experiencing the world? Mm. You know, are people kind to them? You know, or are they, uh, are they fearful? You know, what's going on in their lives that might then mean that they have anxieties or worry? And, uh, you know, do they feel like they're not good enough? Right? What about self-worth or self-confidence, self-esteem? That can be diminished on so many levels, you know. And, and, you know, even from a parenting level, you know, it can be very easy to uh, unwittingly or even deliberately undermine Mm. child's confidence you know if you've ever said to someone how could you be so stupid would you do that for mm. you know that that feeds into a sense of oh so i'm not i'm not good enough so that can be part of the contribution as well
And again, saying it once it probably has an effect on some level. But again, if it's it's repeatedly because you maybe not be, you may not be understood or whatever, then it's just it's. I think what you're saying is like using your vocabulary around young people is is obviously extremely important. Mm. Um, and I think just thinking about vocabulary around people, 11 to 16 or beyond there, I guess we don't think about it enough. Mm. Well, words come easy, mm. don't they? But they hurt. Oh, yeah. You know, and um, sometimes when we're, when we're upset or something's sort of agitated us, sometimes it feels good to see someone else feel hurt, mm. which is why sometimes we say things we don't mean. And, uh, but they have long-lasting impact. And, you know, if we think about um, the more you hear you're not good enough or the more you hear that uh, you're, you're an awful human being, for example, the more you'll start to believe it. Mm. And we started moving into beliefs. So uh, thinking from my own example of academic experience, you know, yeah. you're not good enough, you're not clever enough. You know, I started to believe that and it's taken me... 46 years to, to realize, actually, I'm good at learning, and I really enjoy it, actually. Yeah. Uh, but that's because we can form these beliefs. You based know, on what's around. Based on, and what we hear as well. Mm. It's interesting that. I'm going to go to my next point, if that's okay. I, I guess I need to answer it better than this, but men's mental health mm. under the titles Combining work, lack of money or struggles with money, and not enough time with family, mm. and the battles of trying to do all of those things, but never feeling like there's enough in any of them. Mm. So you're talking about sort of two maybe <clears throat> separate things. Right? Yeah. One is mental health, right? and men and mental health. And the other is life, men and yeah. life. Because all of those things that you've raised are issues that men and women will come in contact with. You know, how do I, how do, I do the work I need to do? Mm. How does doing the work and earning the money to live allow me time to do the things I want, maybe even be a father? You know, so I think they're separate in, in, in some ways, but they are interconnected mm. and you can't really separate them out. I think you alluded to men's mental health and uh, how, how hard it can be for men when you were talking about mm. coming to see me or coming to talk to me and how you had to build up, you know, sense of yourself to be able to do it. Um, I think I got to a breaking point. Yeah, but even then it point. took you 45 minutes, yeah. you know, just to pluck up the courage, mm. you know. And, and, you know, that, that's no small thing, is it? No. You know, 45 minutes, you know. Um, and that was when you knew you needed to do something. You, you know, there was a reason why you needed to get help. You weren't happy with something, mm. you know. And so I think... You have to have a reason why to get help, right? Yeah. For some men, and I, I work with men, 
uh, as well as women and families and couples and children, you know, through, you know, all the age range. But uh, some men come and see me because they've got concerns about their mental health and they'll say, I have this issue, I'm concerned about it. And that would be like an internal motivator, right? Something mm. within them that says, I need to sort this out. And other men I'll see and uh, they'll, they'll say bluntly to me, I'm not a nice man, not a nice person. You know, I'll be honest, I've got to get this help for court or whatever. And uh, you could call it an external motivator, but still they come to see me. And I still hope they gain something from that, even if it's an external motivator. But I think one of the most important things for men in mental health is to try to move away from some of the social narratives that exist about men. What are they? Well, one is men don't cry. Right? Ever heard that? Boys don't cry. Men don't feel. Is that true? In fact, probably one of the most uh, acceptable emotions for a man to feel is anger, right? Mm. Men get angry, right? That's how we do, men get angry. Um, but that's it. Men can't cry. They can't feel vulnerable or uh, they can't show people that they're weak because mm. God forbid what would happen if someone knew that they were human, yeah. right? Um, and that's a, social, that's a social narrative, you know. Uh, you've got to, you're the man of the house now. Mm-hmm. you know, or man up, all right? Don't be a baby. These are things that men have to overcome in terms of some of those social narratives to just get help in the first place. Yeah. So I think where we start to think about how do we help men to experience vulnerability with others so that they can then feel like actually there's something useful here, we've got to sometimes challenge that. So that's mental health, I guess, overall. Or yeah. Partly. And I think <clears throat> I referenced that um, a few men have reached out, and I'm sure women feel the exact same if they're, in, if they're working and they're not spending time with the kids and they have that maternal element already, and then they struggle and they're not working or they're trying to get a job and there's not enough money. Um, so I referenced a few people reached out to us is the fact that they're in a job they don't like, mm. which I've been in that position. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure everyone listening or I guess everyone potentially in the room has been in that position. They're in a job they don't like, not earning enough money, which obviously is an enabler to diminish positive mental health. They do blend together, I think, mm. overall. And there's no right or wrong answer. But have you got any advice? You've got to find the right balance, mm. right? And uh, between work and life. When we talk about work-life balance, but what does that actually mean? And, um, you know, it doesn't mean that you have equal proportion of I work this much and I do... L- family life or social life this much because it's not as easy as that sometimes you have competing priorities competing demands you have to be able to meet those Mm. demands depending on what the circumstances are you know you need money 
you might have to get two jobs. You know, that's not really going to give you much chance to have a life, is it? Yeah. You know, and what life you do have, you're probably exhausted and tired. And, you know, what, what good are you anyway? The last thing you need mm. to come home to is demanding children and asking for time with you when actually what you need is just to have a bit of a break. Yeah. You know, and that can then lead to sort of expressions of, you know, oh, just leave me alone or whatever else. And it can lead on to all sorts of different things. Um, but we move, I suppose, into um, well-being, mm-hmm. you know, mental health and well-being. What, what is that? And I think there's, there's different parts to it. Um, we have uh, mental health, you know, and, and mental health is not mental illness. Let's not confuse mental health with, you know, diagnoses like depression or mm-hmm. Uh, you know, generalized anxiety. Uh, you know, these are these are mental health conditions. You could argue they're illnesses or, or diagnostic yeah. uh, labels. Um, so you've got mental health, and then you've got psychological health, which is you know how you're thinking, you know how you're feeling about yourself, uh, and then we've got social health, and I think those three domains are really important when we think about how do you help people manage competing demands mm. across a variety of different areas. And I think if, if you can start moving into one or two or all three of those, then you start to find that you can create the right work-life balance. Okay. I think that's clear enough. Well, I've got this wheel of well-being in front of you and in front of me and uh we jordan can... will put a diagram of it yeah and we'll put a link to is this on the website uh or is this like no hidden? this isn't no this is it, hidden well it, it's not well it's not hidden now is it no it's I mean, not it's right in front of you <laughs> smart ass <laughs> so okay. if you look at it so you know you've got mental health psychological health and social health and uh, how do we improve mental health? Well, it's, there's different parts to it. Mm. One is like, you know, even if you don't have the life that you want, can you be content? Right? Because contentment isn't the same as being happy. Unhappiness, mm. I feel, is a state of mind rather than necessarily an emotion. Can I tell you what I think happiness is to me? It's quite unique, mm-hmm. but I think people get it a lot. So happiness to me is arriving at the hotel on holiday and you walk into the reception and it's a nice hotel. So mm. you get given a, a glass of Bellini or a, a glass of champagne and you drop your bags <clears throat> and I've experienced this specifically. So this is why it's so much happiness to me. You walk out and the doors open and the sun's beaming on your face and you take your first sip of Prosecco or whatever it is. You're like, oh. That lasts probably seven seconds. And then Charlotte shouts, can I get Billy's on the palm tree? (laughs) (laughs) So then happiness goes, but I am content because I'm around my family. Mm. I'm going to spend time with them. I'm going to be present with them. But I think we ask a lot of people, I know we're going off topic slightly, but um, I ask people, what's the ambition? What's the goal? What's your objective? Either that be physical, mental, emotional health. 99.99% 99.99% always say I want to be happy. Mm-hmm. But my belief system is that happiness is a tiny proportion of your entire life. Mm. Because as you say, 
happy is not content. We can be content. And I think, as I say, happiness for me is seven seconds walking out with a balloon. Mm. I'm like, oh. Yeah, happiness is fleeting. Yes. I agree. Yeah. Um, and, that, and I think that's where contentment is really important because we may not have everything we want or even everything that we need, but can we be content with what we have? Mm. That, that overflows to gratefulness then or gratitude? Is well, it? yeah. So, so, you know, if we think about what is contentment, well, I think we have to be mindful of ourselves and our needs. You know, we, 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 we need to think about, you know, our, our needs being met. You know, what are our needs? You know, do you need to be, uh, you know, given space? Do you need to have time to think? Mm. Do, you, do you need someone to tell you that they're thinking of you? So these aren't like physical needs? No, these are, like, needs. these are like the, the, the needs that you have to feel, I don't know if fulfillment is necessarily the word, but the needs that you have to feel secure. Okay. Right, like safe. Yes. And uh, because that's really, you know, a cornerstone of uh, being resilient or being able to overcome uh, difficulties is knowing that there is a sense of security within yourself. You mm. know, and in order to get there, you have to just be aware and be mindful of, of things. But that might also include mindfulness. You know, being able to let go of all the stuff that's happening and just let it drift away so that you can just be grounded and centered in yourself and i know that you know that's that's something that mm. you guys do uh, whether that's mindfulness sessions or whether that's yoga or whatever being mindful of yourself thinking about how do i feel in myself and i think a lot of people underestimate that broadly unless you are I say forced to do it mm. and i use that word specifically because who's doing sessions in liverpool <clears throat> over the last few weeks and no one is actively trying to be mindful mm. it's hard though. it's hard it's hard i mean you know be mindful let's do some mindfulness and it's like what, what? are you kidding me really mm. so you expect me to close my eyes in front of you and just do some meditation really so i think there's there's a lot of doubt that comes along with that yeah. a lot of vulnerability comes with being in a space where you're invited to do something plus it doesn't work. That's going to be the first yeah. thing that most people say because initially it doesn't work because you have to learn how to be mindful mm -hmm. and it's a process and you have to work at it. I remember I was, I was at this training once and uh, I think the, 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 the presenter was... He was some guru on, on mindfulness or whatever. And, you know, I, I hadn't gone there to talk about or hear about mindfulness. I'd gone there to hear about sort of like systemic psychotherapy, you know, <laughs> you know what's he got on this. But he was, you know, he did some mindfulness. So someone said, oh, you know, could you, could you do some mindfulness? Can we do some mindfulness? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> let's do that. Matthew's and I'm like, thinking, nah. are you kidding me? So he's like, right, I'd like everyone just to sort of get comfortable and close your eyes. And I thought, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like right? a spoiled child. I'm like, nope. Nope. Because for me, doing that in front of a group of people I didn't know, you know, 
what if I close my eyes and someone's nicks my back, right? <laughs> so you might dramatic. be like, wow, you're so paranoid, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, but, that is quite you know, dramatic. What, what, if, what if, you know, people are looking at me um, and I don't feel comfortable? You mm. know, I felt vulnerable. You know, well, why am I going to willfully do something that makes me feel vulnerable? So you have to overcome that. You have to overcome that experience of, you know, this is something that feels dangerous and think about it in terms of how can this be useful to me? Mm. So it took me some time, uh, some years to, to move on from that. And um, I remember I was doing some mindfulness with someone and uh, he's like, close your eyes. And I said, no. And he said, all right, don't close your eyes. And I thought, oh, I can do this my way. Mm. So I just looked at a fixed point on the wall behind him and just focused on that and just did everything that he guided me through. And I thought, wow. And I think like that's very, I say traditional, that's probably the wrong way, but it's very traditional way of being mindful is close your eyes, breath work. If you say clear your mind and some um, guided meditations, and I think someone the way my brain thinks and a lot of people I know it's hard to clear the mind especially mm. either if you're new to it or even experienced in mindfulness but I think from my point of view meditation or mindfulness can come in lots of different states so then when I'm either doing Thai boxing or boxing or I'm doing a long run or I'm doing a long row Sam's going to laugh at me because I never do a long row um, or do something quite methodical mm. but high intensity yes i have an element of mindfulness as well i think you can make a cup of tea and be mindful mm. i think you can do i think that that methodological methodology whatever the word that was yeah. that you said um doing it in a way that means you're focused on doing that task that can be mindful you know if, okay. if you if you're focused on something for a period of time and, and you're so focused on that thing that you're not thinking about anything else mm. that's mindful okay and i think you can you know uh, you can find moments of mindfulness without necessarily looking hard you don't have to do that whole breath work or guided imagery you don't, you don't have, have to buy yoga you don't stuff. have to no, do it, you can be mindful as you make a cup of tea just think clearly about each sequential step and what you're doing when you're doing it and notice what it feels like have you ever had a mindful cup of tea no it's amazing so i was speaking about hopefully having little gems of and golden wisdom there's one order there's one. that everyone have a what is it called a mindful, mindful cup, cup of, of tea. tea and what is the process of that so well the first the thing kettle. Well, yeah, I mean, you could, you could go from start to finish, or it could just be if someone gives you a cup of tea, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if we start from the beginning of making a cup of tea, right, the first thing that you're going to do is probably fill the kettle. Or maybe it's get a mug and a spoon, or maybe it's put the tea bag. Everything that you do, just think about it. Just, think about, just think about the action, what it feels like. What does the mug feel like when you take it out of the cupboard? does it feel hard does it feel cold right just consciously make an effort to notice really important okay so as you go through the sequence of doing that that can be really soothing because you're just focused on that thing and only that thing if something pops in your head you start thinking about a worry forget that you're making a cup of tea 
Focus mm. on the cup of tea. But um, I think you're aware of, and I'm going. To, I'm, I'm trying to mention it on every podcast is that we're building um, a health and well-being app, aren't we? And it's going to be in as many countries as possible, and accessed by as many people as possible for free. Mm. And I think that's you've got an idea now. Is that either here or somewhere? Just create content around making a mindful cup of tea as a as a, as a as a session, mm. as a as an activity. Um, because I think even in my world, in my brain, I think listening to that, I over always overcomplicate it. For me personally, not anybody else, but if I'm not got my yoga mat and I'm not sitting outside and it's freezing because I like to do it in that in that sense. Um, or I'm not in the yoga room upstairs, then I can't be mindful. Mm. And I've I've learned then that you can't be mindful in any given situation. Mm. And, you know, sometimes you might be under the, the pressure of work or whatever else, and, you know, everything's rushing and busy. You can take time out without taking mm. time out. Just doing normal, everyday things, but just thinking about them allowing that to, to happen but one of the most important things i think about a mindful cup of tea is when you start to drink that cup of tea mm. right it already tastes nice it already haven't even well, tasted one you know for me the 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 thing that was most remarkable was when you, you know you're drinking your cup of tea and you're like oh it's a nice cup of tea hopefully mm. it's a nice cup hopefully of tea. if it's not you might be like oh it's a terrible cup of tea shit but, this mindfulness <laughs> cup of tea <laughs> But as you, as you drink it, you know, you might find it's too hot. You might be like, oh, mm. that's really hot. Oh, wow, it's too hot. But as, as time passes and, and the tea cools, you know, you, you start to feel maybe the heat in the mug. You know, you're like, oh, that's nice and warm. Wow, I really feel the heat in that. The bit for me that I was shocked by, you know, and this is something that you do every day, was the bit where you're halfway through the cup of tea mm. and half the mug is hot and half the mug is cold. I'm going to make a cup of tea after yeah. and I'll be like, yeah. Yeah, you know, you're <laughs> you know like, what I mean? Whoa. <laughs> Being we're making brews after. Because suddenly you just, it's not something you notice. You don't ever really, and if you do notice it, you just pass it off as whatever. You don't think about it. Mm. But when you're focused on it, you start to notice things that you had never noticed before. And I guess that, I don't want to say guess. I think it'd be good to get the answer, if there's an answer. Is that doing a, a mindfulness cup of tea? What is that helping you overall around emotional and mental regulation, thought processes? I guess. What well, slows things down? Yeah, it slows things down. Um, is it going to make your life better? No. You know, wouldn't it be great though mm. if it could? But, you know, if someone gives you a cup of tea, that's a gesture that has meaning wrapped up in it. So if someone gives you a cup of tea, it's like almost a signal to just kind of relax. You know, take, take some time off. Mm. Tea breaks. What do we do in tea break? We just chat. We talk down tools. And we just talk about whatever, you know. So the whole process of having a cup of tea, I think, is, is one that, that can be you know, really enabling for a, a moment of peacefulness, right? Where you can just kind of rest and just not focus on anything else. And if you're being looked after, yeah. yeah. So I think in, in, in a way, it's like 
the more you have moments like that, the more likely you'll start to feel content with mm-hmm. what you have. Because do you know what? You're just finding time for you. And that's so important. You know, if, yeah. if you're finding time for you and you start to think about where am I in all this, I'm having a cup of tea, I'm noticing certain things, your mind might wander, but you might start to think about, well, what am I appreciative of today? Mm. What's going well? As you say, it just slows you down overall, doesn't it? Which is the the purpose of mindfulness, yeah. ultimately, overall. You, ever, you must have heard of David Goggins. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not saying I learned it from him, but I did it a long time ago, learning how to develop my own well-being overall by punishing the physical, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Kind of self-harming in a way. I don't know what the line is on that. Well, self-flagellation is oh, an old big term. Word. Yeah, Self. and flagellation. That's a dream. Yeah, it is. Flagellation. 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 Yeah. What does this that was, mean? This was back in what? You know, the, the dark times, the, mm. you know, the Middle Ages. Um, and self-flagellation was a form of uh, um, being able to assuage one's sins, one could say. And, okay. and people would often take a whip and they'd beat themselves and they'd sort of mm. self-flagellate to, you know, sort of, I don't know, process the whole experience of uh, I'm a sinner. Um, mm. But the idea of harming oneself to, you know, overcome, you know, or to, to get through difficult time is not an unfamiliar one. Yeah, um, and I, I suppose I make the distinction between that and self-harm because self-harm, while it is harming oneself, there's a different there's process. A, there's a positive there. impact that comes out the other way. What is it? Self-flagellation. Flagellation. I would say that terminology, but I've never heard of it before. Mm. And I think it's quite a tricky word to say anyway. Mm. So um, I think we, we were speaking about the challenge on your fundraising event was going up the hill, having a dicky back, Expecting your legs to give in, changing um, gears, the bike skids, and you're like, "Fuck, gotta get off the bike, push it." Where you'd expected more of the fatigue to, mm. put to 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 stop you in your tracks potentially, but not that you did stop. But it was more around the brain talking and taking over rather than the body doing it. And then I was referencing that um, from my point of view, everything I've done probably since 2014 since I decided to stop being a dickhead in my world, was to use self-flagellation. Mm. Mm. I'm going to say that everywhere on my social media now. Self-flagellation to improve. Mm. And I did a session with David on now. It's Saturday? Saturday on Thursday, I did an hour and a half of Thai boxing. Um, so that's two minutes on the bag, three minutes on the bag, uh, 45 seconds off, continuous for an hour and a half. Um, if you ever try to do a minute on the bag, you know how hard that is. To intensify, um, I put on a jumper, woolly hat, um, just to keep the heat in. Mm-hmm. Your body can keep going, I believe, mm-hmm. if you've got enough endurance. Um, Obviously, you have to build up to that. But after 20 minutes, the, the, the mind saying, have a drink of water. Mm. Well, yeah, I wasn't drinking any water in this mm. time frame either. That's another thing. 
Um, have some water. No one knows that you're not allowed to drink any water. Mm. Um, Sam or Andy was in here. They don't know that you've said in your mind you're not allowed any water. Just take some water. No one else knows you've you've said that you're going to train for an hour and a half. Just do that half an hour. Just yeah. do an hour. Yeah. So the it, brain decides to fail before it, the body. Well, it does. And you know, you talk about mental strength. You mm. know, that's so important with any with any exercise in in, in that way. Um, and uh, oftentimes, you know, the body can 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 keep going, mm-hmm. but it's the mental battle that you have to overcome. Do you feel? Do you, do, you, do you feel better that you finished it and you overcome those mental battles during oh, the process? Oh yeah, I didn't, you feel I didn't like overcome them. I didn't get. I didn't succumb to them. Though. Yes, I, I pushed through. You know, um, and uh, thankfully, someone had some. Uh, Heat gel. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, so, oh man, that's amazing. It took the pain away. <laughs> Rub it in. <laughs> Just a bit of context to that as well as that you did. Um, what did you do again for your fundraising? Because we didn't record. Yeah, we were it, about was, that. Uh, so it was a three-mile canoe and a four-person canoe, which is two canoes tied together. Hmm. Uh, it was a 22-mile bike ride uh, through the mountains and a five-and-a-half-mile walk up a mountain. Um, so it was an endurance event yes. overall, and and just that um, the fatigue, you know, it, it's tough. You have to push through. But I think in in the same way you describe, um, you know, having to push through your brain telling you to give up, you know, just get some water, mm, you just know. Chill. Um, I think you know marathon runners. I think mm. endurance people. You know, these are this is this is part of the mental battle you have to overcome. Um, and again, it's well documented, you know, your, your brain wants you to give up and you have to push through that and, mm. and it's hard. Um, I've encountered that as well. I used to like running up hills and your brain's like, stop. Yeah. And you're like, no, I've got to keep going one more step. No, no, look, it's so much higher. You, you can't go that far. You just have to keep going in it. But the, the mental battle, I think it's very similar to overcoming anxiety or mm-hmm. overcoming when your brain is telling you things that are really unhelpful, is you have to develop a, a mental fortitude, a mental strength to resist that. Critical self, if you've ever had a critical self where your brain tells you or you, that voice in your head tells you, you know, good, give up. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to develop a, a way of silencing or turning the volume down on, on that, that voice. Uh-huh. And... Sorry, I was going to say, it's just really an important part to the whole process, and, and I think it works well with what you're talking about. And I think it's it's easier, this is me speaking, I can't speak for everyone else who we support or anybody else who's listening, that, is that I found it easier to shut down those conversations of negative thoughts, whatever that may be, or negative actions, more importantly in my world, is that, is that and it's easier to build further mental strength by seeing the evidence of success that you've done in the past. So when when I first started exercising, when I was like, what, 11, 10, I couldn't do an hour and a half of Thai boxing because one, I didn't know how to do Thai boxing. Two, my lung capacity wasn't as big as it is now. Three, I didn't know where the gym was. Four, I didn't have money. So the idea that you, there's a stepping stone to success. And I think that's also around evidence to what you can achieve then which reduces anxiety which then reduces the ability to have self-doubt because you've got all this evidence here mm. of how much you've actually achieved year to date 
I'm now 33, how much I've done in the past 33 years that in my belief system, and it's going to sound cocky and all the rest of that, I don't believe there's nothing I can't achieve because what I've achieved so far, I'm just going through a certain process to get to where I need to get to. Mm. Either that be physically, either that be mentally, either that be with Billy, either that be with the organization, relationship with Charlotte, whatever the situation or whatever the challenge is. I know because of the evidence, I'll be able to achieve that. Mm. Well, I, I, I believe we mm. can continually improve. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ever think, that's it, I'm good enough. Well, you've kind of given up then, haven't you? That's a dangerous space to be in, isn't it, I, I think. think? Yeah. So if you, if you take the, 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 the stance that it doesn't matter how good or how great I am at this or that, I can always be better. Always mm. be better. I think that's a great mindset to adopt, to have. And uh, it, gives you, it can give you the motivation to keep trying. Keep making an effort, mm. not be comfortable. Yeah. Comfortable and and so if, if, you, if you fail, so what? You Try again. You learn something along the way, won't exactly. you? Exactly. I think I'm just going to reference this point because we, we kind of very briefly touched upon it, didn't we? And I'll give it a quick show and tell again. And Jordan will have a some sort of logo somewhere of it, is that there's lots to it, and we've probably touched upon a tenth or eleventh of it. Is there anything, spe- I know it all kind of complements each other, is there anything specifically that you think is taken over society mm. specifically? Well, I know it, it all kind of interlinks, uh, I know that. So, you know, what we're talking about in, in this moment, what you were talking about in, in the sense of... Uh, you know, self-improvement and that drive to continue to build and noticing what you've accomplished or what you've achieved, you know, just in those small gains that you might make. Mm. You know, one day uh, I, I, I couldn't run half a mile and the next day I, I can run half a mile. It's like, mm. wow, okay, I've achieved something. You know, I've gone from not being able to run at all to being able to run 5K amazing you know these are the cornerstones for that sense of self-worth which is fundamentally Mm. important to self-esteem which if we think about it in terms of the 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 wheel of well-being is is about psychological health Mm. you have to be able to recognize what your worth is and you know one of the difficulties that we encounter today with social media is that we measure our worth based on other people. Other right. people's success. It's comparative. Visuals. I see you on social media and I think, oh wow, look what you've got. Mm. I think, look how many friends or likes you've got. I must try harder to get more friends, more likes. And, and the problem with that then becomes that we are driven to achieve something that's potentially nondescript. You know, what does it actually mean? that you know you've got all these amazing things that people see what about the people that don't have that and i think you said then is that touching on social media and i thought of the opposite is that you said i must do more i must post more or whatever there's a there's a big category of people that don't have that resilience Mm -hmm. don't have that i can i must i want they may say I want, but they don't have the 
the mindset, the strength, the ability, the, the creativity, I don't know, to get to those things. And then that's when, um, in my opinion, um, social media mm. can be a curse, potentially. Well, I think it can. It's, it's wrapped up in a number of different things. So if we think about the, 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 you know, what, what is social media, it's, it's about visibility. It's about seeing something of someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that seeing something of that someone is what other people want you to see. So, selective. Yeah, selective. It's like this is, this is a, a, a representation of me that, that I'm happy with. And I've, I've you know, had friends who are going through awful things in their life, awful things in their life, bad times, you know. And, and they're on uh, a preface, you know, feeling like life is hard, it's awful. And yet on social media, they're having a great time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not representative. And the problem is, is that if you're looking at social media and you think this is accurate, that this is real, then you start to feel like, well, why am I not as happy as they are? Why are they doing this? Or I have to work harder at making people recognize me for my worth. But it's, it's an emptiness because you're constantly striving for something that isn't real. And I can totally agree with that, I think. We've built and I've built and my team have built our success based on social media. But our reach is, uh, is amazing, what we, what we reach now. Um, but I haven't posted on Rage Fitness way after this morning, that's a lie. Um, I didn't post for maybe 17 hours. <clears throat> we normally post every three to four. Um, and I, I, I promote positivity, I promote, I promote motivation, I promote success, camaraderie, for a better word. Um, it's about helping the people around, just showcasing what people have done, so then you can do it. That's what I try and do. Um, my personal business social media, um, Craig underscore Brown underscore wellbeing, um, is about mostly Billy because that's my passion, ultimately. Don't get me wrong, I do the odd training session here and reshare stuff from Rage. But even in 17 hours of a window, I'm like, oh, I haven't posted. Mm. Um, our engagements will be lower. Our mm. social media reach will be lower. Our analytics will be lower. Matt, the other Matthew that I think you may have met, um, he'll be like, Greg, analytics are dropping. So even at my position now, and I'm not saying I'm the bee's knees and I've got it all figured out because I haven't, but at the level that we are at now from where we was five years ago, yes, we've created the success, but the success isn't guaranteed in the future. Mm. So you have to, in my opinion, you have to constantly create more content to be present and be relevant, and that's a hard balance. And, you know, social media has its place. Mm. You know, there's, there's no doubt of that whatsoever. You know, there can be some very productive things that come from it, as, as you're talking about. But where we've got um, exposure to content that um, other people say, you know, this is what you should be doing, or this is what you should be thinking, or whatever, mm. um, you know, it's potentially unsupervised to, to some extent. So you've got children as young as 11, even younger than that, 10, watching TikTok videos. That's some are okay, me. some are not okay. There's an age limit, you know. So if we think about 
the fact that something seemingly fun and enjoyable is actually potentially quite harmful. You know, what, what are children learning? And I was talking to someone recently, a 16-year-old, and he was telling me all about his uh, presentation, the things that he, he was struggling with and what this meant, and mm. he was convinced that he had an eating disorder. And I asked him, what, what do you mean? You know, what are the things you're, you're, you're looking at that tell you that you've got an eating disorder? And he listed off something, a number of things very knowingly. And I said, they were all wrong, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I said, that's interesting. I said, where have you got that information from? And mm-hmm. he sort of sheepishly uh, smiled and said, TikTok. And I said, I thought you might have got it from TikTok. Because it was fundamentally wrong. Mm. There, was, there was nothing accurate about anything that he had said. So we hear a lot about how uh, there's people talking about this and that on social media. And it's like, yeah, great. But how do we know it's true? How do we know it's accurate? Factual and helpful, ultimately. We don't know. We don't. There's other resources for identifying mental health support or things that can be useful. But I think, you know, for, for if we come back to that idea about what do we do about all these young girls, you know, 11 to 17, mm-hmm. you know, well, social media is not a helpful platform because you've got all these people who are taking selfies that are looking beautiful and wonderful and they're amazing. There's influencers, there's people who are using social media as a form of work to some extent. And it's really hard not to get drawn into that. I've talked to many people who, who've come to me and, and have said, one of the problems in my life is social media. It's causing anxiety, it's mm. causing stress. And you say, well, why are you on it? You know, oh, well, it's just everyone's doing it. It's like, yeah, it's hard. But those same people or even other people have said, you know, do you know what's made a difference in my life is social media. getting rid of social media. And I think it depends on the algorithm, not the things that you're liking, mm-hmm. isn't it? And I think <clears throat> not every young girl is the same as, an, as, as the next-door neighbor young girl. So I would say a certain amount of the content exploits young people and makes them think differently about themselves. As you say, then they go into work and they, they take certain photos and certain videos, which I guess anyone under the age of 18 shouldn't be watching because that's their... That's their base, basis of society. This is how they get likes. This is how they do this. This is mm. how they do that. That's the negative from a, from a young female's perspective. Then you can go down another route. Um, you can find men online that are derogatory to women. Mm. And, oh, yeah, he's the man. Mm. I should like him. 13, 14, 15, 6 year old to engaging in that behavior and think it's okay to do so and yet we've we've heard from mums and and dads about their daughter being exp- uh, not exploited being um exposed and bullied in, in classroom mm. environments and social settings absolutely and if you if you if you if you watch it back or you you, you track it back and you map it back you can see where it comes from mm. so i think on the wheel i'm going to find it I think you touch points about it, that being around self-esteem. Mm. I think minimizing exposure to unhelpful content. Mm. 
unhelpful content. Yeah, yeah. And, and we'll define unhelpful. Well, it's going to be an individual basis. You know, for someone who, you know, doesn't feel great about themselves, then comparing themselves to people who look beautiful, you know, and I use that in inverted commas, you know, mm. because it, you know, beauty's not I have a beholder, but, you know, it's like, look, I'm, I'm you know, I've just woken up from a, a nap. It's like, oh, wow, oh, yeah. you, know, you look stunning. That's Put amazing. your eyebrows you, tatted on and everything, you, love. You sleep like that? Wow, that's brilliant. I you woke know, up like, like this. I understand that as well, yeah. Like it's, and again, it's like you said, it's what people want you to see. Mm. So it's all created, it's the creators. And I think from a young man's perspective, it, sometimes you just don't comprehend that. So then that comes down into this section of self-esteem. Yeah, but then you've also got like the whole social norms thing. Everyone mm. else is doing it. So let's just say, yeah, you know, true. you say to your young people, look, um, you, should, you should stop viewing these things. Mm. You know? Everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is talking about it. Have you seen this? The sharing videos are doing this. It's very difficult to compete with. Very difficult. And, and so I suppose it's that that's where the resilience, like, you know, well, how do you help an individual make their own decisions about what's good for them mm. and what's not good for them? You know, is it okay for you to be trying to get as many likes as possible? Is that actually good for you? Or is that actually causing you more bother? Is it causing you more stress? Getting more health issues yeah. across. If the it's board, causing really. you more stress, mm. it's probably not good to do. So can you minimize it? Mm. Maybe not just get rid of it, but can you minimize that? From my perspective, I'm I'm gonna outsource it now. So I don't have to worry about it. Mm. Which is good for me. Because then I'd have to when Billy's sitting there playing with his box or throwing his apple everywhere, which I'd rather play with, rather than going on my phone and doing social media. Charlotte mm. said to me this for weeks now. Get someone else to do it. Let them create the content. Let mm. them do the posting. And you can spend time with Billy. Yeah. Which Focus on the things that are important mm. in your life, right? So if we think about where does that fit in, in the, the wheel of well-being, that would be home. Right? Aye. That would be family, right? What's not important when you're at home with your son? Mm. Content. Content. Generation. Putting pictures online. Yeah. It's not important, is it? No. That might be, that might fall into the work mm. side of things. So you've got to get the right balance. If you're doing work at home when, and you're not working from home, or you, know, you, you, you might have things you have to do, but can you put them down if it means going and seeing Johnny's football match? Yeah. You know, well, I'm too busy, can't do it. Is that true? Or are you just putting those barriers in place? It may be true. I've got a deadline. Okay. Mm. That prioritizing needs to happen sometimes work has to take priority but do you take time back i think from my perspective i'm i say i think i may have said this before publicly but i've definitely said it to lots of people offline is that the position i'm in now with billy not many men are in that situation i'd say it's probably 50 50 split of the time in the weekend with billy and 50 percent of him at work so people are 90 percent at work and 10% at home and when they get home they just want 10 minutes peace mm. and then that creates that turmoil within the family like you haven't been here all day blah mm. blah blah and then really they're spending 5% time with the kids because they're just 
from an energy perspective, they just mm -hmm. don't have that energy. Or they come home and, and they need five minutes, 10 minutes peace, and they don't get it. And so then they spend the next four hours in states of conflict. Mm. Whereas if they'd had that 10 minutes of peace, would that have made a difference? Now they can do the uh, mindful, mindful cup of tea. Well, there's that. Do you or come and do that? You, you might need to negotiate. Actually, when I come home, I just need, need 10, 10 minutes. minutes just to collect my thoughts, just to switch yeah. gear, to come back so I can be the me I want to be at home. Is this the five by five, part of the five by five? No, that's a different... So that's a different thing. That's a different thing. I'm glad they brought it up, though. Yeah, so the 5x5 five five model is uh, it's a consultation framework uh, that I use when I'm working with organizations. And uh, it stems from a lot of the ideas that I use when I'm working with people. Hmm. People are people. People are people at work or at home. And if we think about organizations, you know, well, they're made up of people, right? That's the greatest resource that any organization has are the people, the relationships that exist at work. You, you reference, oh, I hate work. You know, people saying, oh, you know, what do I do when I'm in a job I don't love? Well, why don't you love the job? Is it that it, you're just not well suited for the job? Mm. Is it that you found your way into a job that actually... I had to do it, so now I'm stuck. Now you do. In which case, you might need to try to change jobs, or is it that actually work is just not an enjoyable place? So the five-by-five five model um, is, is based on the work of Patrick Lencioni, who uh, wrote about five dysfunctions of a team. Um, and, uh, you know, these are really common. You'll find them, I would expect, in any work context. We've gone through the five by five, haven't we? Yeah. So, yeah. And and it, you know, so, so in terms of going through it, you know, uh, is, is Rage Fitness and Wellbeing Company dysfunctional? No. Hmm. Do you have to be dysfunctional to use the five by five? Yeah. No. no. But the five dysfunctions that, that are often present, so there's an absence of trust. Right. You can think that that could be an absence of trust between people or it could be an absence of trust within the organization that you don't really trust, you know, the, the, your leaders mm -hmm. to do what they say they're going to do. They might say they're going to do something, but they might do something else. There might be an absence of trust. There might be a fear of conflict where I can't say what I want to say, because if I do, you'll shoot me down, or you'll tell me I'm an idiot or stupid. You might diminish me, you might devalue me. Mm. Well, in fact, it doesn't really matter, because whenever I say something, no one ever listens anyway. So fear of conflict can sometimes prevent achievement of being the best you can be. You know, just as so can a lack of trust. If you have a, a, a lack of commitment, hmm. right? Well, why might you have a lack of commitment? Well, I'm not bothered about the job. You know, why aren't you bothered about the job? Well, you know, it's not going nowhere. No one listens to me. Can't say anything. Just not motivated. Now, that can be a big issue in, in any team. It can be a big issue in any family. Hmm. You know, what about an absence of accountability? That, you know, if you do something 
and it doesn't go well, are you held accountable? If you do something well and you achieve something, are you given credit? If there's an avoidance of accountability, then you can get a real sense of drift. And, and the final uh, dysfunction of a team um, is uh, sort of not being focused on a goal, sort of inattention to results. If you're not atten paying attention to what results you're getting, what's the point? I think out of everything, um, when we went through, I say we go through the five by five. I think you're always going, mm. <clears throat> going through the five by five. So I don't think it's just done the program, done the course, done the consultation, done the feedback forms, and you're done. Because I'm still working on strategy mm. every day. I'm still trying to share updates and goals every day. I say every day, probably once a week. <laughs> <laughs> but it, what what we did out of all those dysfunctions, I think the goals was the biggest thing that people just wasn't aware of because it's all up in the brain for me. Didn't share the ambitions. I think people could potentially guess one thing that I was probably trying to do mm. or as a collective I was trying to do. Um, but from just from, from I guess, a testimonial, if anybody watching who's thinking or debating to do it, is, is one, do it because the, in, the amount of information you get out of it and it, we we were quite a, a trusted group of people anyway, I think. But I think what I got out of it was that I felt like the trust improved even more so because mm -hmm. we shared the goals, we shared the ambitions. There's probably weekly or bi-weekly WhatsApps about what we've achieved, what we're trying to achieve, which then helps the teams to then deliver the plan, support, education, one-to-ones, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I just wanted to say how, how valuable we we found it, mm -hmm. and we're still working on it now. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's designed to be an ongoing process that mm -hmm. you don't just do it. You know, it becomes yeah. part of the organization. It's, it's a way so. of working. And so the the other the other five to the five dysfunctions are the five essential functions. Like if you if you if you want to be working well or being high performing. You need to be able to have uh, an organizational culture that fits. You know, you have to have an intentional culture, not an unintentional culture. Because an unintentional culture, one is often one that can lead to your five mm. dysfunctions. You need to have psychological safety. Because if you can't speak openly and can't trust your colleagues, why would you ever have commitment mm. or motivation? Your team needs to be aligned to your vision and your mission. And what's the whole point? Why are we here? Because if you're not clear about your purpose, why well, you're not going to be motivated. Why, why would you be? Mm -hmm. And within that, you also need to define your structure that best suits whatever your task is, whatever your project is. You need to have a, a structure that accommodates the flexibility or agility it's not just this hierarchical top-down process, but it's about how can we be responsive to any changes that might be coming so we can be more effective together. Of course, there's the focus on goal setting. And all five of those five essential functions work together to address all of the five dysfunctions. dysfunctions. And I think it's quite a dynamic model in the sense that you can use it as you need to use it Whatever you're working on, you'll always be working on all the other five essential functions. I, 
and again, I think from the the five essential what's it called five essential team functions. Team functions. Um, was ours highest rated? I don't think that's the right way of saying. It. I don't know. Was it um, psychological safety? If I remember rightly, mm. from a team's perspective, our team felt very safe. They felt they felt very supported. And I, I thought that would be high, but I think everyone really, from a, from the forms that they fill in, um, raised it quite highly. Which, from what we do and what we're trying to support mm. people with, it was quite rewarding to see it on paper. Because again, we didn't know what people said or who mm. said it. They could have said anything, and obviously there's some surprises. But the psychological safety, I remember it being spiked mm. in that area. Yeah, it that, was for that, from that diagram. It was by far the one thing that everyone said felt good is you know what we can say what we think mm. you know we, we are able to speak openly um and we know that that you know even though craig's got a foul mouth and <laughs> you know that he he calls people names and and whips them into shape that actually you can still say what you think um mm. the area that that the team almost resolutely mm. all agreed wasn't as as good as it could be was knowing where are we going mm. what what are we doing and that sense of we're not really clear on what are the goals that we're trying to achieve together yeah. and as you said before it's because you you held everything in your head it was all up there i think i've shared I'll say 75% that's a lie mm. <laughs> I think I've shared 50% maybe maybe less 45% getting better getting better but it, <laughs> it's 45% more than what we'd started with and that was when April June January March April May April, April, oh May. gosh um, it was this year I think it was April, April April yeah so what we are now April May June July August we've made progress mm. um, is it again this is why I keep saying you don't just go through it, you continually improve. Um, I think we've still got a long way to go around goals, ambitions, where we're going. Mm -hmm. I think if anything, all the other elements have improved, especially psychological safety with a lot of things that have gone on in the organization, the support that we've had for everyone. Um, but I thought I'll bring the five by five up just because I, I, I think it's invaluable mm. for what we did. And if there's any organizations, I shared this on LinkedIn, as well as um, TikTok and the note, every business is on every social media platform now. Um, I think it'd be good to try and speak about that as much as possible. To then we'll put your um, hyperlink of the website in there so people can access it also because I think it's brilliant. Um, and that's probably an understatement because mm. I know it's far more than brilliant, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> oh, you're so kind. I'm not really selling it, but go and look at the website. I was on holiday just recently and uh, I was saying to you before about, uh, you know, I'd found it a little bit stressful, or tough, mm. you know, and um, it wasn't until the end of the holiday, like the night before we were going, <laughs> right, and we had a long flight. It wasn't until the, the end of the holiday that uh, I was just overloaded. Mm. So... I snapped at my mum. Oh, but it wasn't just snapping at my mum. I know it was terrible. It really was terrible. 
Um, I don't know what it was what what was said or what I, it was. It's a it's a haze. But I knew that we had an argument. We also had an argument in front of the entire family. Mm-hmm. It was not good. No. And I was dissatisfied with that. And you know, I had to think about it. I had to reflect. There was a lot of stress that had happened early in the week. Some difficulties with my daughter and you know just like things were not going to plan and you know where you you, you've got like a time scale to order food Mm -hmm. you know and so you do ordering your foods for you know the whole group and you get through the whole process of doing it online and everything and you put in (laughs) your, your your card details and it says this isn't working Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so, so then you're like, right, well, I've really got to get this done, but everything gets really stressful. Mm. And inevitably, it was just an overload for me. And so I snapped at my mum. Was that helpful? Yeah. No, it wasn't. I had to think about what it was that was leading me into feeling overwhelmed and I was stressed. You know, I was worried about my money. What if I can't pay for this? Then what's mm. going to happen? No one's going to eat. We've got to leave the house in 10 minutes. It needs to be done before then. Yeah. And of course, who was the, the first person who was the easiest to take out my anger on? Mm. It was my mum. Of course mm. it was. So I had to reflect on that. I had to reflect on the fact that actually she's the closest member of my family who I know mm. almost expects me to get shouty because she's my mum she knows me but she's also the only person I shout at <laughs> oh, <mom. laughs> poor mum I know right and I felt awful but that's I think but that's, it took self-reflection yeah. to get there to understand why have I done what I've done and am I happy with that no I'm not happy with that so you go and resolve the issue in the way that works best you know hopefully it's not beating someone up but it's actually mm. thinking about look I'm sorry this is what I've done and this is why I've done it and I hope you understand that and I think that when you, you mentioned overload, and that was one of the things I wanted to bring up is because every conversation I have, is, it, it, I've come to the conclusion, I'm not saying it's factual, I've come to the conclusion that it's just an overloading of mm. multiple things. And this is obviously backed by science because when I'm speaking about it, I've read it somewhere, is that being overloaded with your daughter being unwell or there's an issue, the food is not being processed through the app for whatever reason. Your car's not working. Like, fuck. The timeline of you have to be out in half an hour or 10 minutes. Those three things in itself, when you're on holiday and you're trying to please people, is another thing. So all these things are bubbling up anyway. Um, and I think outside of your situation and the things that we see or we hear and all the things that we're trying to help people with is that they don't have an outlet Mm. around overloading and they don't have someone to confide in and they don't have a trusted person or um, they just don't know what to do mm. to remove the overloading process. Yeah. Um, like we spoke about before, self, that word, um, that's how I deal with it. Mm. That doesn't work for everyone. Mm. Um, mindfulness, spirituality, conversation, uh, psychotherapy, 
I think the biggest thing I find people with overloading is just they don't have the education mm. how to help oneself. Mm. Um, so I think having this podcast and other podcasts and the service that we offer, educating people what you do overall, including the 5 by 5 model, because what I've found about the 5 by 5 model, this is a compliment, by the way, is that <laughs> um, individually, individually, the person benefited as as well the organization because I become more focused around educating the team around what we're doing. But individually, they also benefited as a person, as, as they developed relationships, such. So Sam runs his own little uh, business, as does some of the other team. They benefited. Um, but I think that overloading element, this sounds... Um, easy is there any quick wins that you got back to a normal state from mom because you were overloaded is there anything that you did apart from speaking well i had to think about it mm, self-reflection as you say yeah um and i also had to acknowledge that i was wrong which is hard for a lot of people yeah totally you know but i had to do it mm. because i knew that i'd you know really hurt my mum, really hurt her, you know, it was out of order, my behaviour was not on, so I had to sort of climb down from my stance, my soapbox, mm. I'm right, you know, it was, this is why, and just sort of take a position of contrition and say, look, this is not how I want it to go, that helped, mm. you know, my mum got it, you know, if I'm honest, I was tearful. I wasn't expecting to be tearful, but that was important, mm. you know, to to be tearful. I wasn't wailing and sobbing, but, you know, I felt the emotion. Mm. So I think, how do we do this? So that overload, that pressure cooker, it does feel like a pressure cooker. Well, a pressure cooker is like a bomb if you don't let the pressure out. You've got to let some of the pressure out sometimes. And it's just the same with life as well. If mm. you're overwhelmed, yeah, it will compound and it will build. You know, what's a fantastic way of releasing some of that negative energy that we can encounter in life? Exercise, you know. Mm. Spending three minutes punching a, a bag, you know, and really getting out some of that energy. It's amazing. Exhausting yourself to the point where can't move anymore or an hour and a half that can help it It does massively help help. and i think from again this is me speaking you mentioned earlier on about most men's emotions first go to his anger mind's anger i know that and i've learned that over the past six years i think so how i guess this is speaking to a male audience more than anything else but how do you um stop giving a shit about things that can make you angry from my perspective hmm. is be more grateful appreciate what you have mm. seeing the world for what it is because it's easier to bitch and complain about John next door got a new car and I'm driving this old polo I don't know it's easy to find those negatives in life and then 
having a, 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 an old car, not liking the job that you're in, not seeing the kids enough, not having enough financial issues, blah, blah, blah. I've been practicing gratefulness every day for 10 minutes every morning when I walk the dog in the piss and rain or when it's sunshine. And I always start with that. And it changes every day. And it's always got a Billy element in it. Mm. Um, the, the, I, I, there's, there's maybe a couple of days in the past six months that I've not practiced it. And I can guarantee, mm. guarantee I'll be bitchy. Yeah. Okay. So you're talking about appreciating. Appreciating. You know, talking about contentment. You know, mm. These are things we've talked about already yeah. in the, the wheel of well-being. You know, it, it is an important part to the whole process. Is I was talking to uh, someone who was depressed and she, she was talking to me because she was feeling like she was suicidal. She wasn't mm -hmm. suicidal. She wasn't going to take her life, but things were bad. And we were just talking about noticing the small things, noticing the things in life that you just wouldn't ordinarily notice, mm. right? And she said, oh, you mean like when I'm in my office and after it's stormed and I look out and I see the tulips emerging like that? And I said like that. Mm -hmm. And that fundamentally changed the way that she looked at things. She could see the beauty in things that you would miss ordinarily because she wasn't appreciating what there was. Mm. You know, I remember during lockdown, remember lockdown, all mm. that COVID nonsense, and, uh, you know, stress of working from home and the kids are at home too because they're not in school because schools are closed and mm. you have to be a teacher at the same time as a parent. And you have to do the work as well. And guess what? You fail at all three <laughs> yes. miserably. So you're stressed already. Home that you once used to love is no longer a fun place because you cannot escape it. You're trapped. You've got compounding pressure. And I remember I was walking on the canal uh, with the, the kids and because uh, we had to get out of the house, you know, yeah. it's like, we're going for an exercise. Let's get, get the four walls. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, we don't want to go. And it was raining. <laughs> I'm like, we have to go. It was raining. And, uh, you know, I've got my raincoat on. Uh, my son's got his raincoat on. My daughter doesn't have a raincoat on. Hmm. I'm like, put your raincoat on. No, I don't want my raincoat. I'm like, oh. Anyway, so I'm just really irritated at this stage. You know, I'm just fed up mm. and uh you know i've just got a mood on me now i'm just discontent i'm unhappy i'm just miserable you know and uh when we were walking along the canal i was just in this bad mood you know mm. how it goes the kids were laughing and i thought wait a minute the kids are having a nice time i'm irritated and annoyed because my daughter's not doing as I tell her to do, which mm. is all well intended, you know, being in the cold and the rain without a coat yeah. is going to catch you a cold. Mm. But she was having fun. Just enjoying the with rain. With my son. Mm. And they normally quarrel and bicker. Yeah. <laughs> and they're enjoying it. And suddenly I thought, do you know what? I would have not noticed that mm -hmm. if I just just followed my mood I'd, I wouldn't have seen that so sometimes we do have to just stop and take notice and be grateful as you say there's every, I think within any, in every environment and again 
I sound like a hippie sometimes when I say this and people like people can't deal with my energy sometimes because I'm like positive Peter 80% yeah. of the time full on full on you know this firsthand. <laughs> um, is that I think in every situation so yes if Billy doesn't want his wear his coat in my opinion I won't, I won't get put his coat on because I like him in the rain you'll probably see on some of my social media videos he runs through puddles and slides like slippers I've got on at the minute um, because I see in my opinion I see the joy in him mm. enjoying that knee deep puddle with his little legs and he's in, he's in um, sliders um, so I think a message I guess to everybody ultimately is that no matter what situation there's always an opportunity to appreciate or be grateful in it from my point of view well said I think um, I just want to say thank you Matthew for coming on mm. I really appreciate your time and energy um, I think there's lots more we can discuss and speak about um, so thank you for coming on appreciate thanks for that. having me um, and hopefully we'll have you on soon sounds, sounds good, good.